1: Here's a math problem for you to solve. What do you get if you have 100 million dollars, give Eddie Murphy 20% of that, subtract the cost of making a movie, then add the box office totals? The answer? You get one of the biggest box office flops of all time. We may have our hands full as we try to prove to you that The Adventures of Pluto Nash it's not that bad. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, I am going to fully admit before we even start with this movie that this may be one of the toughest episodes we have handled on this show yet because we are talking 2002's The Adventures of of Pluto Nash. And joining me on this this almost seemingly impossible quest is
2: Greg from Movie Date Night and Moral Combat. Greg, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, man? I had to return to fulfill the prophecy. (laughs) I had called the shot last time I was here for John Carter and I was not going to go unanswered for talking about my sci-fi trilogy of Pluto Nash. And I'm doing fantastic. Okay,
1: so for anyone who uh, is new to the, to this show or is new to your show, just give us a, a quick rundown on what Movie Date Night is.
2: Sure. Movie Date Night is a podcast in which my wife, Lauren, and I, um, we each show each other back and forth the movie that the other's never seen before. And then we talk about, um, you know, we break down the characters, uh, how they could have improved the movie. And most of all, at the end, we ask, would you recommend this as a date night movie to others who might want to watch it on their date night? So now I have
1: to ask, is The Adventures of Pluto Nash a date movie?
2: Okay, so <laughs> this is kind of putting the um, putting the end at the beginning. You want to read the last page of the book right now. But mm-hmm. if I were to ask Lauren and she would ask me, would you recommend this film? She'd say absolutely not. I would say absolutely yes, because in my mind... There is nothing better than an atrocious movie that you can just complain about for hours. It sparks such fun conversations that I would recommend this movie, and that's why I recommended it to you. Nice, nice. Okay,
1: so before we get into the actual breakdown of this, it is time to take the adventures of Pluto Nash and trailerize it. The moon is a cold, inhospitable place. The perfect location for the hospitality industry to expand to. Meet Pluto Dash, an ex con who somehow buys himself a bar only to have it blown up by the people who want it. Joining him on his quest to stay alive on the moon is Dina Lake, a singer turned barmaid who just wants to get off the moon like everyone wants to get out of the movie theater. Also featuring a cast of characters who wish they never signed up for this. The Adventures of Bruno Nash. Rated PG-13. Oh my god, that was perfect. Okay, so that kind of gives you a rundown of this, but let, let's go through the list here. So, this movie stars... Eddie Murphy, Rosario Dawson, Joe Pantoliano, Jay Moore, Randy Quaid, Pam Greer, John Cleese, and a lot more names that you would actually recognize. So when you see that cast list, were you surprised at at just how south this movie went?
2: (laughs) I really was, and especially considering when it came out 2002. So I have a quick rundown here of where everybody was at in their careers when this movie came out. So um, let's kind of go from the bottom to the top. John Cleese is in this movie. Listen, he did this the same year that he was also in Roberto Bernini's uh, Pinocchio. Oh, no. And Die Another Day, the worst Bond film arguably by many. But yet I think his Monty Python status alone like cements him as untouchable. And outside of Shrek 2, he hasn't done too many other big roles after this. But like whatever, he's John Cleese. He's got all the Monty Python money he can ever want.
1: Well, I mean, there's also those you know, little Harry Potter cameos in there, too. So.
2: Yeah, he had like one or two of those, I think. Uh, yeah. did, I don't think they really did the ghost for like beyond the second or third movie, really. No, but anyways, no, I, I, I don't think too far, now. I mean, I've, with the exception of Moaning Myrtle. Uh, otherwise, people will at me. So, yeah, Moaning Myrtle, I know she's throughout <laughs> it for a lot. But anyways, um, Joe Pentelione, Um, you know, listen, he did this back-to-back with Daredevil. So, like... He's never quite had it, in my opinion, much better than when he was in The Matrix or Memento. And those are really the only stand-up movies that he has moving forward from this other than within hit the Bad Boys series.
1: You know, I actually didn't mind him in Daredevil.
2: No, I'm saying like, you know, that was okay, but like that's where he's at in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Louise Guzman, listen, he's on par for this film, no complaints. Peter Boyle. <laughs> Still doing Everybody Loves Raymond at this point with this few small roles here and there, like I think around the same time he did Father Time in the Santa Claus 2, which, by the way, also totally breaks my mind since he was also, I realized, in the Santa Claus 1 as Tim Allen's boss. So Hmm. I'm thinking that he somehow knocked Father Time off of his roof. And replaced father time and i want to see that movie which i call the holiday replacements where all the current holiday figures replace their previous um uh entrance jay moore who plays um tony francis in this movie <laughs> this essentially killed his movie career because he went from he went almost completely to tv after this before this he was actually in some pretty good movies like pay it forward 200 cigarettes small soldiers jerry Maguire. This is the last major movie that he was in where he actually could say, I was one of the top five builders or so. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this one really killed his chance in movies and he just went straight to TV. Rosario Dawson, this is the same year she did Men in Black 2. So she's on a lot of people's radars. She goes on to do Girls Slide, eventually Sin City Rent. So her her star is really rising.
1: And this, correct me if I'm wrong, this was shortly after she was also in Josie and the Pussycats.
2: Yeah. Well, a couple years after, but yeah, Mm -hmm. within about five years, I think. But yeah, so she's really starting to make a name for herself and get out there and become not so much a face, but more of a household name, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, My notes here, uh, I must have been really angry with this movie because I wrote this while watching the movie. I said, Randy Quaid, Human Nightmare, whose last (laughs) good year was 96, 97 when he made Independence Day and the last tolerable Cousin Eddie run on Vegas vacation.
1: yeah. Yeah. It's been a while since Randy Quaid was good.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And then last but not least, we have Eddie Murphy who around this time, he was really just starting to lose his mojo with movies like Showtime, I Spy, Daddy Daycare, and also he was trying to run his own claymation show called The PJs, which I admittedly I do love, but he was kind of becoming more and more of a, one trick pony in people's eyes we're like okay we get it we get that murphy voice and how he you know gets a little bit excited and that's kind of his acting go-to
1: yeah just get back to gumby and we'll be fine yeah <laughs> one of the interesting things though is is when you see the list of people who could have been in this movie but oh, weren't. it breaks my heart yeah. yeah and in the role of dina lake uh it was j-lo Jennifer Lopez and uh-huh. Halle Berry both turned down the role that Rosario Dawson finally took. Uh, for Halle Berry, it was a scheduling thing. Jennifer Lopez probably actually read the script, um, but <laughs> but but when you take a look at those two actresses, could you could you actually see either of them do a better job than Rosario Dawson?
2: No, I think Rosario Dawson did really well with what she was given. You mm-hmm. know. They have the expression, you can't polish a turd. And I think this is the best chance that she had to do so. You know, I think that considering the character that she has and how little backstory there is there, if you watch her through the scenes, she seems to be one of the few people who's actually at least enjoying herself on set.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, this movie, of course, was in developmental hell since 1983. And at one point, even Harrison Ford was rumored to be involved. So, and that would have just been very, very, very odd. Uh, eventually directed by Ron Underwood. Now, if, if the name sounds familiar, that's because he's directed Tremors and City Slickers. But, you know, as as we kind of say occasionally on this, uh, on this film, this would be one of the last films he would ever direct for the theater. And it was. It was the second last theatrical release as a director for Ron Underwood. Now, he's gone on to direct a ton of stuff for television, but it was this, and then it was stealing Sinatra, and then he was out of the theaters. It was also written by Neil Cuthbert. Uh, this, this would be the last film he ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> but this, his filmography as a writer is not that big. But you've got names like Mystery Men and the screenplay for Hocus Pocus on there. So there, uh, there is some good comedic writing you know, talent mm-hmm. in Neil Cuthbert um, But we'll talk about whether he actually Accomplished that a little bit later And then there's the box office We mentioned at the top of the show That this had a 100 billion dollar budget Domestically It made 4.4 Million dollars Worldwide
2: 7 7 And And listen, I was part of that domestic box office. I saw this in theaters. I was psyched for this movie to came out. And this is the same year that I got my driver's license. So, you know, a little bit of that kind of teenage freedom. I can go to the movies whenever I want. I'm going to go see all the movies that I want. And even walking out of the theater as a 16-year-old, I was like, wow, that sucked. (laughs) I'll admit I never saw it in the theaters. And neither did a lot of
1: other people Because when this debuted yeah. On the August 16th 2002 weekend It debuted In 10th 10th With, mm-hmm. a, with a gross of 2.182 Million dollars To give you an idea of what the box office Like who was actually at the top Triple X was still at the top in its second week. Oh, such a good movie. Making 22 million. The highest grossing debut that week was Blue Crush. Yes, the Kate Bosworth, <laughs> Michelle Rodriguez surfing movie debuted at number three with 14 million. Signs was in number two, still making 19 million. That was in wow. its third week. Going down, you've got like Spy Kids 2, Austin Powers and Gold member. And it's, Okay, just to put this into perspective here, in its 18th week in the theaters, My Big Fat Greek Wedding made more more than twice as much sitting in number six the week that The Adventures of Pluto Nash debuted. But
2: listen, (laughs) that's one of my top three favorite rom-coms of all time, so I I don't doubt that at all.
1: Admittedly. 18 weeks in the theater it went up 82 percent. that's people saying they're going there's nothing what's new this week adventures of pluto nash go back to my big fat greek wedding heck yeah (laughs) as far as accolades go quote-unquote accolades at the razzies that year it was nominated for worst picture eddie murphy for worst actor worst screen couple for him and himself And worst director and worst screenplay. Didn't win any of them, though. The worst movie that year was Swept Away.
2: Yeah, that one, like,
1: swept the Razzies, it looked like. Worst couple was Adriano uh, Giannini and Madonna for Swept Away. Worst director was Guy Ritchie for Swept Away. Worst actor, and I kind of have to agree with this one, Roberto Benigni for Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. Worst screenplay went to Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. I don't know. I th- I think this one may, should have probably won that one. Although, Attack of the Clones was the one where they decided to let Hayden Christensen try to do romantic dialogue. And it didn't oh, work. Oh,
2: yeah, that's right. I always get that confused with the number three, but you're right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it was
1: also nominated for Worst Comedy of the, of the First 25 Years of the Razzies. Like so when you think about it, they they looked at the twenty-five year the first twenty-five years of Razzie's and said Adventures of Pluto Nash was one of the top five worst films in twenty-five years. It lost to Gili.
2: Yeah, that's really bad. I couldn't even make it through that.
1: Is it bad? I'm sitting here thinking, but was Gili really Adventures of Pluto Nash bad?
2: I mean, at least Pluto Nash I can get through. I couldn't make it through Gili. <laughs> I, I still up to this day don't know how Gili ends because I just can't. So uh, something about cows. And so I don't
1: know. It's, it's, I, I will admit, Julie, Julie was one of those ones you kind of try to avoid as much as you can. Uh, interestingly, in an interview, Joe Pantoliano said, I was surprised and I'm, I'm just shortening the quote here. Mm-hmm. I was surprised it turned out to be better than I thought it was going to be. And he actually praised Ron Underwood as a good director, just working with the bad script. And I can almost kind of see that because you do have talented people behind the scenes. Their their past resumes show that. But let's let's get into the breakdown. Let's start with the acting. So we're going to start at the top of the bill, Greg, and I'm going to throw it to you. I got to start with Eddie Murphy because yeah. this is an Eddie Murphy film. What was your thoughts on Eddie Murphy in this?
2: Okay, so you already mentioned a lot about the director Underwood and like how he had troubles with this film and some people said he did the best he could with what he had. But apparently uh, some of the research I did said that Eddie Murphy kept rejecting the scripts and that he would ask for a straight script, uh, one that would be more written for someone like Harrison Ford. And then he said he would bring the comedy to that straight script. So when I see Eddie Murphy in here, I don't see the funny man that I'm paying my money for. I'm seeing like a comic actor trying to play serious and then kind of being forced to do a joke every now and then his entire Mm. acting throughout the entire film is wooden as can be. Like I was almost is wait, is this the Pinocchio film? Is this the little wooden boy in front of me? Because it sure, it sure feels like it. You know, I don't even
1: think Roberto Benigni would have been that bad.
2: No, but I mean, but we know that
1: Eddie Murphy can pull off an action comedy. Oh, he you know? can. I, I mean, mean, I've
2: got oh, his absolutely. box office receipts right here. First he earns 3 million for Shrek, then 20 mm-hmm. million for Doctor Dolittle 2, 20 million he got paid for Pluto Nash, but then they're like, "Oh wait, no, he's not the golden goose after all. 10 million for Shrek 2, 4 million for Shrek Forever After, 7.5 for Tower Heist." But he can do action comedies like that's in his repertoire but just this one he just kept like rejecting the script saying no no no, i got this i got this and it's like no you don't got this how about you go with the script that people wrote with you in mind at this point or rewrote with you in mind and accept those rather than just i'll do it on the i'll do it on the evening i'll do it on the night and that's the
1: thing we've seen it with beverly hills cop and the the subsequent sequels Mm -hmm. we've seen it With The Golden Child. I mean, I think The Golden Child. Oh my God, The Golden Child, yes. Right? One of those classic films where you sit there and you kind of overlook it, but it is a good action comedy, even though Mm -hmm. it's a bit more on the action side than kind of like a Beverly Hills cop. You know, at no point is he, you you know, shoving bananas up tailpipes. Yeah, you know, but if, 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 if someone says the golden child and you don't respond with, I, 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 I want the knife, you know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those things where he he has been, you know, like the driving force behind a lot of movies. You know, I mean, really, who do you quote more in Shrek, Shrek or Donkey? Oh, Donkey, 100% right? So there's a lot of there's a lot of Hollywood muscle that Eddie Murphy is able to throw around but sometimes it's one of those things where maybe he shouldn't be throwing it around because if you have someone who's poo-pooing on everything else that's kind of going on like if you're shooting down the script and the director it's going to affect kind of everybody else and you're right it was very wooden and I don't think the movie really knew what it wanted to be.
2: Yeah I agree I think that okay it's interesting that you said that um that first of all, Harrison Ford was originally attached to do this back in the 80s. Because technically, if you think about this, this could be like a weird Han Solo fan fiction, Mm -hmm. you know, because Pluto Nash is known to be a a rim hopper, which is a kind of smuggler. So like you could just turn, you know, oh, I did Sea Tranquility into I did the Kessel Run. And like, it's the same character, essentially, you know, bragging about, oh, I'm the best smuggler. I got all the hideouts and stuff like that. So- Already you have like the cool kind of action bad boy there. Yeah, you can add some comedy. That's no problem. But just, I don't know. Something about, I think it was just a a butting of heads of how the director wanted to do it versus how the star wanted to do it. And just that obstinance for neither one of them to really give up and the lack of trust between those two parties that just kind of causes to like, you know, failure to launch.
1: Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is like even though we know that Harrison Ford was apparently rumored to be attached to this at, at some point mm-hmm. I don't even know if if Harrison Ford would be good in this because you know if the movie's supposed to be a comedy I mean yes Harrison Ford can be you know funny but I don't know if Harrison Ford uh, maybe Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade but even that's more on the action comedy side of things but you know if, I think of Harrison Ford and, you know, you
2: think of a bit more serious, a bit more grounded, you know? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, if you put Harrison Ford onto the sets here for Pluto Nash, my mind's immediately going to go, oh, Blade Runner. This is like Blade Runner 2, right? Yeah, I, I could see that
1: a bit, but it would have to be a lot darker and a lot better directed for that. Yeah. Um but on the other side, you had Rosario Dawson, who actually did kind of fit in with everything. And, you know, I mean, you go through her, you know, through her filmography at that point, And, you know, I don't think there's much in the way of sci-fi there. So the fact that it leans more comedy, I think, kind of fits Rosario Dawson a little bit better.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, if you look at just some of the scenes that she steals comedic-wise in Men in Black, well... Granted, many people say that the first one's far superior to the second one. I still enjoy the second one very much, and especially the moments that she has, where she's been revealed, like "Oh, the alien world's real!" Like she has to stay behind with the worms, or just the one-liners that she gives back and forth with Will Smith. I think she can hold her own in a comic scene, no problem, especially at this point early in her career.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of those things where you know, it, it, like you said, it's earlier in her career, so she's not trying to. Know, pull any strings she's there to do the best job possible with the script and the director that's there trying to make the scenes work and it's, you know if 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 eddie murphy is sitting there trying to change a bunch of stuff right you know she she worked really really hard to make those scenes work given everything else that's going on
2: yeah like i said she had an ever changing script. She had a character who is just, I want to get off the moon because I didn't want to be here in the first place, but I have no money. Like other than that, we don't know why she left earth in the first place. just randomly she's here. Now she wants to leave. That's all we really get out of her. And that's, that's a nothing character. You know, she's essentially um, sexy lamp, you know, throughout (laughs) most of the film, but yet she still makes it fun and engaging and, while yes, you can say that, oh, well, in most of the scenes, she is just really being something pretty to look at, something for Eddie Murphy to rescue. The few moments where she does get a scene, like when they first go to the um, the hideaway that's on like some moon crater where it was his old base, and that French maid is clearly set on like in activate sexual encounter mode. The look that she gives Eddie Murphy of like, oh really? This is this is what you do, that's that look right there just kind of told me everything about what's going on in her head, what she's trying to portray to him about like her feelings and opinions about this. And she's a great actress. Like
1: the mm-hmm. little bit
2: that she has, she makes makes gold out of.
1: Uh, although I do have to say that sexy lamp has to be the title of the brick Tamlin biography. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's, it's even when she first meets Eddie Murphy in in the bar and she's trying to get a job as a singer and you know you know she kind of name drops her father and the, cuz they were in the joint together and you just see the disappointment in the fact that yeah okay well that was the, that was the last card i had i knew it was going to work mm-hmm. anyway so one of those like i w- i was right and this wasn't going to work there's so much like there's so much thought into the way that she handles these lines, even though the lines aren't great to begin with. But there's so much thought and a lot more depth into Dina Lake. And that's that's a thanks to Rosario Dawson. I really cannot picture what a Jennifer Lopez would be like in that role. It just, it just would not work.
2: No, you're right. And especially going back to that scene you were just mentioning, when Pluto Nash says, no, sorry, she has a line that she says to herself like, thanks a lot, dad. And like mm-hmm. in there, you immediately get the entire back history of like, oh, my dad always exaggerates. He always lies. He always like changes the story around to make himself look better because she's essentially saying to Pluto Nash, my father saved your life. And he goes, no, I saved your dad's life. Peace out. You know? mm-hmm. So just that one line of thanks a lot, dad, to herself, builds so much character for her, Builds so much backstory that the script did not have. And that's mm-hmm. how, yeah, she's amazing with this.
1: you're you're bang on with that that one line it sets up you know not just you know her her personality it sets up the way she initially interacts with eddie murphy uh, the disdain like you like you pointed out when they get to far side and and the the the, the maid is set to oopsie uh like the, the, yeah, so that's the, called oopsie yeah, oopsie, yeah. <laughs> but it's true like there's there's so much and it is it's completely set up by one line so there so there's a check mark for the for the script as far as that goes but i think again handled best by rosario dawson now we we, we got to jump to bruno You do realize we have we have to talk can, can, about randy Quaid. just
2: because otherwise my nerd name will not let me rest can we call it the return to bruno so that way i can have the um the uh uh bruce willis record in my head it's the return i think to-
1: I, I think i'd be happier if bruce willis was bruno
2: in right this. but it it is
1: interesting because you know i i get the whole droid as joke thing you know it's a it's okay it's way over the top um i would almost say i'd be happier and if you remember the guy who was like you know Lando calrissian's uh droid partner at cloud city with the the whole like reverse geordie laforge headband going on
2: oh that yeah. guy
1: would have been a much better bruno uh the jokes it, it's funny bruno i think is the more comedic of the characters because in this movie In this comedy movie starring someone who is arguably a comedy legend, Mm -hmm. Eddie Murphy is not the funniest person in this. I think Randy Quaid is actually, you know, at least Bruno is funnier than Pluto Nash in this. And that's saying a
2: lot. 100% agree. Everything about everything that comes out of Bruno's mouth is funny. And he has so many funny scenes that, like, arguably serve no purpose that you can easily cut, but they're there because they're funny. Like when they go to the casino and the one slot machine starts, Eddie Murphy just says to him, wait right here, we're going to go talk to the concierge. Okay. And then a slot machine comes up to him and they have like this weird robo-sexual exchange. And it's just funny and how he interacts with it and how he, you know, keeps talking about his own love and sex life. At the very end, he talks about how he can't be with a French maid because he's a 110 voltage, she's a 220, and an adapter makes it so he can't feel anything. Mm-hmm. like which, that's which just, may be the funniest line in the damn movie yeah which is, <laughs> but like right there he steals the punchline at the very end of the film after that the only thing the film has left to do is just listen to the uh the song that dina lake is singing and then just watch eddie murphy smoke a cigar that's it yep the film essentially ends with a randy quaid joke and that's saying something
1: bruno may be and this may be going out of limb here bruno may be the horniest robot in science fiction history, yes, right, right up there with R two D two who keeps who keeps whipping it out and sticking it into things.
2: He's even hornier than the humping robot from Robot Chicken, the one that oh, just God. goes up and just starts <laughs> humping stuff. He's even hornier than that.
1: I, I'm so happy you mentioned Robot Chicken because I had to go back and watch that episode from season four where they they did uh, you know, the Pluto Nash Day.
2: <laughs> it's, yeah.
1: Ugh. I can just imagine what that was like when they saw the $2 million opening
2: weekend. Now, one thing I want to talk about Uh, Bruno's appearance, though, because something really, really bothered me this time through. So whenever Bruno or any other android speaks, there's this kind of metallic echo or reverberation in the voice that tells the audience this is not a human being. This is not a flesh and blood person. This is a robot, right? They also move in a very stiff, quote, robotic fashion and they always have this weird – they either have the worst wig in the world on or they have, like, this kind of, like, LED light-up strip on the back of their head, mm-hmm. right? So, like, everything when you look at them and listen to them says, I'm a robot, I'm a robot, I'm a robot. Bruno has this suit on, and I don't know if you noticed this, but the stitching is rivets. He literally has bolts and rivets along the stitching of his suit, and it just bothered me. He looks like a Frankenstein monster instead of a robot with that outfit.
1: I I will admit that they, they did, you know, they, they completely pitch shifted his voice to make it sound like he was, you know, one of Cher's backup singers.
2: Yeah.
1: During turn back time. But uh, I never actually noticed the rivets, but but I'd have to go back and watch it again. Surprised I'd have to go back and watch it again. No, just, if, uh, <laughs> just Google
2: Bruno from Pluto Nash. You'll find the picture. Like
1: Yeah. But, but I mean, that's, I, that's actually kind of clever as far as the costuming department goes but yeah like much like most other things in this film they're really kind of hammering over the head with a bunch of things um i I didn't mind the uh the the the, the auto the auto pitch or the auto correct they had on the uh, on the voice because oh I thought that yeah. was fun. Hmm. It, it, it was totally fun. But yeah, the, and the fact that he was a little bit slower than most droids because he's still a 63 and had, they you know, mm-hmm. haven't upgraded. Like I like the, fa- I, I, the fact that Bruno is one of those like old, old, old models of a, of a robot. And Pluto is very, you know, for whatever reason, like just connected to it, can't get rid of it. It actually shows a layer of loyalty to Pluto Nash. That doesn't really go mentioned much beyond that. Um, so the fact that Bruno is so outdated, you know, the, the Windows 95 of droids for him, but, you know, through thick and thin, he's going to stick with him. Like, so I actually don't, didn't mind the character of Bruno. Uh, Randy Quaid did play a little bit over the top, but he did have some of the best lines in it.
2: Yeah, and going to the point you made about Pluto Natch's loyalty, this entire movie feels like it's meant to be in the middle of, like, a serial Mm -hmm. stories about Pluto Nash because there's so many references that we get zero backstory on about previous adventures that he's had. Like, you know, Dina Lake comes up and says, oh, you saved my father. You know, he talks about how loyal he is to Bruno and how he can never get rid of him because he saved his life more times than he can count. And we see little hints about his old smuggling operation. And it's... It's interesting. It almost feels like they wanted to Star Wars this. We're like, oh, eventually we'll go back and get some younger guy to be the young Pluto Nash. And then we can see how it all started. And I'm interested in that story, but not at the cost of another one of these films. (laughs)
1: If they were going for a Star Wars where they start kind of in the middle, uh, they kind of missed the Star Wars boat and they ended up with Leonard part six, which was the only Leonard movie out there, complete, complete with frogs gathering together and lifting the car and throwing it into the, into the water, um, God, I can't believe I mentioned Leonard Part 6 and the fact that I've seen that far too many times than I cared to even imagine. (laughs) Um, But it's funny, though, because if Randy Quaid is a little over the top, but it kind of calls for it, Joe Pantoliano uh, is much more reserved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if this was supposed to be more of a Harrison Ford-type film, Joe Pantoliano would not have felt out of place in that kind of a film.
2: Yeah, his energy was lower than everyone else's as well, it seemed. Joe Pantilano, I can never say his name. I'm just going to call him Joe because I can't say Pantoliano. Joey Pants. <laughs> Joey Pants, right? Joey Pants, Joey P. Um, you know, if you see him in other films like Daredevil, which I already mentioned, when the, when he lights the double Ds in the subway to show Daredevil was here, the anger and frustration that he feels about, it, like, why can't I catch this guy? You know, that's the kind of level that you kind of want from him. But here he only gets about 70% of the weight of that, it seems. And I Mm -hmm. mean, he's supposed to be, you know, a goon who's hired to kill these people or else his life will be forfeit. And he knows that. And yet he's kind of like, okay, get out, get out the car and go get him. Hey, Jay, he's over there. Go get him. And make sure you prove that the body's there. Like that's kind of the level that he's bringing. It's like you can get a little bit more excited about this. As
1: far as the disconnect goes, as far as the, you know, the ruthlessness he's supposed to show, that kind of in a weird way it makes sense because if you think about the dynamic between um you know Rex, uh, the the main guy that you know mm-hmm. that's kind of behind all of this, um based on what they say at the, you know at that casino, no one sees Rex at all. Yeah. So so his only reaction his only connection to Rex would have been through Belcher. So for all for all you know, he even knows Belcher's the guy who's actually pulling the strings and pulling some weird things. So if you don't know and you never see the person that that you're working for, the person who says you I need you to go blow up this bar, kill this guy, and get this for me, but you've never seen him, I I can see how that would actually affect the amount of energy you put into going after you know putting your own life on the line and and trying to kill someone for someone you've never met. So. Again, much like Rosario Dawson, there's there's you know if you really look into it, there, there's a layer of depth there that that just shows the the working dynamic between Rex and uh, and Joe Pantoliano's character.
2: Yeah, I think I think the only time that he really ever gets any kind of reprimand is from um, the kind of second in command, whose name I can't remember right now. That'd he be Belcher, does- yeah. Yeah. He grabs him by the shirt, if I remember correctly, and kind of like roughs him up a little bit, just like shakes him saying, you get back out there and you finish the job. But like, you're right. Like if, if my boss's boss is literally like essentially a Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, like I've never seen, but like the back of a chair for him. Like maybe you start to think, ah, he doesn't really exist. He's a Santa Claus and I'm just working for nothing.
1: Now I'm trying to picture Dr. Claw is a better Rex.
2: Yeah, he has better
1: voice too. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Pluto. Next
2: time. Oh, well, you did
1: that well. <laughs> A little too well. <laughs> yep. um, one of the guys you mentioned at the beginning of the show was Peter Boyle, the guy who played mm-hmm. Roland. I, I loved him. I thought he was an absolute gem in this. Like, he to me is the perfect retired, you know, yes. Secret Service, FBI kind of guy who's going to use his connections to, to figure Like, there's just so much to like about him.
2: Yeah, I agree. He fits that bill to a T. I have really no complaints about his role in this film, other than he is in it too little. He's in about two scenes, and that's it. He he does the pool scene where he gives the audience the tiniest little bit of a bone about what the actual plot is mm-hmm. about, you know, the the cloning going on, and then he brings Eddie Murphy a spacesuit and gets shot in an elevator.
1: That's the one of the things like his death really kind of got glazed over it's it's like you hop in an elevator here's this guy he's trying he's trying to get information from it's like you know yeah you know, it's not like the, the old days you used to know who your friends were boom he's mm-hmm. dead and then it's almost like they never really brought it back it's like if this was the guy that Pluto felt comfortable in going to get information from and you find out he's dead or did Pluto even find out he was dead? I was like, gonna say
2: that- I don't think Pluto knows I think that's one of those side bits that just happens Hmm. There
1: are there's there's these little threads that like they pull they pull this pull this and nothing ever happens with it because it it is it's a grandiose film but they try to condense it to because apparently the original cut of this was three hours long ah. And then of course they had to scale it back and do massive reshoots. So yeah, it's there's so much missing from this and I think Roland is definitely one of those characters that needed to be explored more.
2: I mean, he feels like the old partner that Pluto's been it through through forever with, you know, like um when I when I look at him, I'm actually reminded of the character Sullivan from the Uncharted series. You know, he's the guy who used to go on Avengers, and now he stays on the boat, handles the radio, and pulls the car around when you need him to. Mm-hmm. Kind of guy, you know. Like, yeah, he's a little bit too old to actually be in the rough, like running gun part, but he still wants to be part of the adventure, even if it means that he's got to put down the uh, vending machine pizza for two seconds.
1: I I really wish they'd explored that that that. Roland Pluto relationship like like was Roland uh, you know like Pluto's point guy when he got out of the got out of the joint did Roland know uh Dina Lake's father because of course like you know they had spent time together in in, in prison like there's so much more that they could have done with Roland and they right. had the perfect guy for it like more Peter Boyle makes this a better movie
2: right I mean if you ask me I think the relationship, especially considering it's Peter Boyle might've been that one time Peter Boyle, AKA Roland did like a dirty cop thing where he took a pavement and looked the other way. And that's when Pluto Nash caught him or Pluto Nash was part of that. And so Mm -hmm. that's how they kind of have that history, that kind of trust of like, well, I can bust you for this, but I can bust you for this back equally. You know, you tell on me, I tell on you. And that kind of builds a friendship. So I think, yeah, like I said, it feels like a serial that we're only in the middle of. We get this tiny little glimpse of these, honestly potentially fantastic character backstories and we get none of that is it
1: weird i can actually see a like a pluto nash franchise as more of a film noir Mm
2: -hmm. oh definitely
1: Mm -hmm. like more and and again going back to one of our earlier episodes here more in the vein of like the spirit where it's a bit darker you've got more of that you know underworld-type characters, a lot a bit more under... And then you can still have it in that sci-fi realm. Maybe don't make it look like a spirit, but, you know, just something a bit more film noir because this was, you know, this was very much kind of like almost one-dimensional all the way through, and it could have had a lot more depth.
2: Yeah, I... All I want is for this movie to be remade, but better. You know, Uh, I heard recently somebody say... And I forget where I heard this. I wish I could remember. It was on some other podcast where they said, the problem is that Hollywood keeps remaking films that were good. Why don't we try to remake films that were bad but fix them? Because there's great gems there and great potential, but no one wants to tap them because if it proved it failed once, no one would take the chance on it again. But I think this is one that actually does deserve that second chance.
1: Hmm. And the thing is, you know, before we get into to talking about Jay Moore and the rest of the cast here, as I was watching this, um, it reminded me of one of the uh, the characters uh, in a series of books that was written by uh, sci-fi author Ben Bova. Uh, it's the Sam Gunn character. And I, I just want to read you a very quick description uh, of Sam Gunn. And it's, it's not long, but it says, former NASA employee astronaut, entrepreneur, and interstellar rascal. When not hitting the sack in zero gravity with an evil seductress, he's out convincing Earthside money bags to buy up interplanetary real estate. Now tell me, that doesn't sound like what they, maybe they wanted to do with, with Pluto Nash.
2: That's If you didn't tell me that was Sam Gunn, I would say that's Pluto Nash to a T. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, that, and I say like you have characters that are written that that would very much inspire a Pluto Nash. There's the Sam Gun series It's done by Ben Bova. It's two books. you can get them both in the the Sam Gun Omnibus. Harry Harrison, um, most people probably uh, recognize him as the author of the book Make Room, Make Room, which was then turned into the movie Soylent Green. His two of his biggest book series were the Stainless Steel Rat and build the galactic hero and both of them both of those characters had characteristics that you could easily put into a Pluto Nash series which by the way for the record I have been wishing for a stainless steel rat tv series netflix series movie whatever they got to do with this that that needs to happen but I would be fine is if they if they took the world of Pluto Nash borrowed from Sam Gunn the stainless steel rat or build a galactic hero and made a much better production. Anyone who does this now, you're welcome. (laughs) I'm, I'm going to try and manifest this into, into reality, but while we're manifesting a much better, Pluto Nash, do we put Jay Moore into it? Because, you know, the, the Anthony Frankowski, Tony Francis, you know, role it works at the beginning like i i liked the fact that you know pluto nash comes in you know saves let's be honest saves anthony frankowski's life Mm -hmm. right and then we don't see him for like an hour and a half later until he comes up as as like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna call him my chips now he just seemed like he needed a bit more development although i did i did like the whole Pluto getting him to go from, you know, Anthony Frankowski doing whatever the heck he was doing in a kilt to uh to to actually becoming like a, an Italian-style crooner on the moon.
2: I actually I disagree. I think that that was just the right level that they gave him there where it shows Pluto having some kind of an initial friendship or relationship with him. He does something that benefits Anthony, aka Tony. And You know, he saves his life. And then later he comes back and says, Hey, I saved your life. You owe me one. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's nothing but Pluto's like entire weekly schedule. He's just constantly out, like just getting favors so that he can cash them in constantly. And, you know, this feels like kind of a short and easy one that he gets. But yeah, I mean, could have. You know, Tony Francis come in maybe a bit earlier and been a bit more part of the team. Yeah, you could. But at the same time, if you think about what he actually does for him, it's very little. He says, "Okay, well, I could put you on this elevator that then you can jump to this other elevator to get up. Oh, we already been arrested. So it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, like the entire side plot there of like I have a plan and it's already fallen apart. So who cares? It worked itself out in the end.
1: Exactly, it's almost like you know, the the the, the favorite chip that that just doesn't cash in, you know. It when, when you think about like the the Godfather movies, there was that one character, and it's been a while since I've seen the Godfather, so bear with me on this one here. There's the one character who you know who wants to have the music career, and of course, like the the family helps him kind of get to that point. You know, this they could have done a bit more maybe with with Frankowski, but you know, it's it's tough because. You know, they set it up and then it was just almost like a flop, right? Like, I'm going to get you in, but it's not going to work anyways. It's it's It was almost like a fake out.
2: Yeah. Well, same thing also with when they have Rosario Dawson go to break out Bruno from like the little you know, casino jail. He, Eddie Murphy literally gives her money and says, go bail him out and let's go. She goes there. She says, I'm here to bail him out. They're like, no. We don't have the the invoice yet, so we can't have you do that. So then Bruno just has to break his way out and punch the guard. And then they leave Mm -hmm. and she takes the cash with her. Like a lot of the plots in this movie or plans they make just immediately get thrown away and flushed because funny action joke. And it's, it's a little bit frustrating as a viewer going like, well, then why did you even have me watch them formulate that plan?
1: Again, one of those like you know, those threads that were pulled that just you know ne- either never you know made it to completion or just threads that weren't really attached to anything. One of the cardinal sins of this movie, I think, is it's a perfectly it's a waste of a perfectly good John Cleese, Pam Greer, Burt Young, and Ileana Douglas. You know, and you know yep. Louise Guzman, but Guzman kind of gets his gets his moment. Um, but a I, I smiled so much seeing Burt Young in that opening scene. Yeah. You know, so then they watch it like, Polly! Polly's in this. But <laughs> but again, it's one of those characters where it's like, I wish we had seen more of Burt Young. Yes, I recognize there's like the eight-year gap between when Burt Young happens and then like, you know, Pluto's bar becomes the biggest thing on on you know on that side of the moon. But I mean, Pam Greer is his mom. Like, it's almost like, yeah, you know, we, we need a mom character. Let's just, you know find anyone oh hey pam greer's free let's throw her in there like they had pam freaking greer and they didn't use her properly
2: yeah she's in about two and a half scenes and then she's gone and i mean for the one part where she is in the chase out of the apartments you know she does a good little bit to distract and take out some guys i enjoyed that but then all we really see afterwards is just her on a video call just saying, Pluto, look out. And it's like, you had Pam Greer. Why can't she come back and be like, I figured you would meet up at the casino, so I came to help. Like, that would have been so great if she came in as the Calvary at the very end of the film. But no, they. it really feels like they the constant production was like, oh, we found out we have Pam Greer for a day. How much can we squeeze her in? And a day's worth of shooting.
1: I, I don't know if the, the entire – Pam Greer thing was to try to humanize Pluto Nash or not. But yeah, you're right. Like more Pam Greer. Just like more Peter Boyle, right? Like, if you're going to create this big world with all these colorful characters, you've got to develop them and make them mean something. Peter Boyle worked well in the fact that, you know, he meant something. And when he died, I kind of wish that that it had affected more that kind of happened down the road. Pam Greer, you could have taken and left left or, or and that's, that's the script. That's not her. John Cleese, however, I did enjoy as that uh, you know, as the AI of the car. He was kind of fun with it. But, you know, I mean, he's the perfect guy for that. I don't know who you'd replace him with. But it, it still felt like just a waste of John Cleese. You, want, you almost wanted more of that.
2: Yeah, I even have a solution for how you can have more of him. Because when the car crashes and Joey Pants is there... He, John Cleese's program is saying, hey, come get me out of this thing. Take me with you. I have information about the guys you're looking for, which means that he could be removed. If they had taken John Cleese's robot programming with them, you could then have him essentially plug into any other machine, and then now he inhabits that machine. How great would it be if they plugged him into that um slot machine that was hidden on Bruno or into the elevator and then he can hack that and make the elevator rise and fall there's a lot of ways you could have sci fied him into any other situation out of that car exploding but once again I feel like John Cleese we have you for a day in between shootings for dying of the day as R. so what can we do with you well I can put you in front of a blue screen wearing a chauffeur's hat and you can read these lines it'll take about three hours mm-hmm.
1: and the sad thing is it's like I mean, Pam Greer, Burt Young, Ileana Douglas, like, they weren't even in the trailer. No. John Cleese was in the trailer.
2: Yeah, he's a so, big part of the advertisement. He's one of the mm-hmm. I went to go see it. Well, absolutely, because you see, you
1: see John Cleese on screen, you know, comedy fans are going to want to see it. Like, this is one of those things that justified this being a comedy, and yet all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, John Cleese is done in about 10 minutes. Like, no. Like... If he's the AI of the car, who's to say he's not the AI of every car on the moon? Yeah. Like, if you think about um, The Good Place as a perfect example of this, you know, you've you've got, like, you know, the AI, for the life of me, I can't remember her, her name uh, right Janet. now. Like this. Janet, exactly. And there's just basically a series of different kinds of Janets. I would love to see a different series of John Cleese AIs throughout the entire moon as being the interface that they use. You if you have John Cleese and all you gotta do is put him in front of a green screen and then like, you know, see giant and wherever, use John Cleese properly.
2: Or how great would this be? What if John Cleese is Pluto Nash's personal virus? where he plugs it into a machine and then that takes over and then he can tell John Cleese what to do. So he steals the car, plugs John Cleese into the ignition and then John Cleese goes, good afternoon, Mr. Nash, steal it into the car. I see. And then he goes, you know,
1: exactly. Like just more of, cause if you're going to put him in the trailer, he's got to, it's gotta be big, right? It has to be because it's John freaking Cleese. And you're basically yeah. clearly using his, you know, the weight of his career as a way to push this as a comedy movie. And it it felt almost like a letdown how little John Cleese we got.
2: It just, yeah, I I agree. I mean, I first became a fan of Monty Python around the start of high school. So I would have only... I, at this point, watching it in two thousand two, I would have been like knee deep in Mighty Python stuff, like going over the life of Brian, um, Quest for the Holy Grail, all that. So to see him now in this movie and recognize, oh, that's Sean Cleese, especially as a new fan, I was psyched. But then, yeah, he's uh, he maybe has five minutes of on screen time, and that's it out of this ninety mm-hmm. minute movie. I mean, really
1: I Admittedly, he's some of the funniest five minutes of the film. I'll, oh, I'll absolutely. That. But it's John Cleese. It's hard not to. Um, I, I love that you mentioned how, like, you know, gotten into my Python high school, and that's kind of a driving thing, because when you watch this movie in 2002, some of the jokes, they're kind of funny. But when you watch it post-2016...
2: Yeah.
1: And when you realize that Hillary Clinton is on yeah. the money and there's a trump realty on the uh, on the moon reference well that's this gonna movie, happen no matter what you know well yes but this movie plays very differently you know 14 years down the road and it's like and the fact that you also have like an uncredited appearance by alec baldwin it's just like there's just so much so you, you sit back and go
2: oh that didn't age well at all or was it the perfectly called shot that nobody expected i
1: I don't know i I don't think you know anyone's gonna sit there and say well pluto nash kind of simpsoned the future out of this but (laughs) only the simpsons can simpson the future but the there's some references there where you're just like oh well that aged interestingly mm-hmm. um let's let's talk about ron underwood here uh, as far as the directing goes because we've mentioned that this script has been um not the best you know it, you know when Joe pantaliano is basically saying like yeah it turned out better than i thought because they the, the, weren't working with much and it's not the director you know, how how do you how do you as a director an accomplished director who has done very... Like, City Slickers is a classic. It's an absolute classic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? And then you have to sit there and look at the script and go, oh, we're doing this today. Like, like, to you, how was this film directed?
2: I think this film was directed where... Okay, so the way I view this, for a while, I was a substitute teacher. Uh, and, you know, being a substitute teacher, you go into a classroom with essentially a script of like, here's how the day should go. Here's, you should hit this point and then this point and then this point. And if it all goes well, it'll all be done by the end of the day and you won't have, they won't have to worry about homework. But then there's always that one or two students who's like, nope, not doing that. And they just choose to disrupt everything. And you're constantly trying to guide the ship back. I feel like that's kind of what was going on here. I feel like he had a lot of forces, Eddie Murphy especially, trying to guide the ship back away from that, trying to derail the lesson plan. And he just kept trying to pull it back towards what his vision was, what he wanted to do. And just, I don't want to say the expression, too many cooks, royals, this spoils the soup, because I don't really think it's that exactly, but it's kind of along that way of, you know, when one hand pulls the steering wheel to the left and one hand pulls to the right, you end up in a tree.
1: Yeah. No, it's, the the script didn't do... Them any favors whatsoever, because as we've as we mentioned before, you have these tangents, these angles, the, these storylines where they start to go somewhere and then they don't. Right? It felt to me, and this is kind of more of on a script point kind of thing, is that they tried their their best to create this, you know, oh wacky wacky zany things happen on the moon, but instead, it's almost like they needed to develop pluto nash more as a character because mm-hmm. it felt more to me like okay so all these crazy things are happening and eddie murphy has to deal with it you know no no like who's pluto nash why should i care about him you know we got a little bit of that in that, in that opening scene and as we're watching that opening scene where he comes into you know kind of throw a little bit of his reputation around to to, to save tony francis there you know, I'm like, okay, this isn't too bad. This isn't too bad, and then it just got wacky and zany. You know, with you know everything from horny bodyguard robots to you know, made droids set to oopsie to you know, deaths that that led to nowhere and and unused characters and who the hell is this person? Like, f- narrow it down. Narrow it down, make us care about Pluto Nash, tell us who Pluto Nash is rather than just say, hey, he's this guy, he owns this bar, and why should I care that it just got blown up? Like, why? Just You know the
2: other interesting thing about this film is that I just kind of realized? So one thing I enjoy is whenever sci-fi films take a stab at future tech. Like, what's going to be the cool new gadget that they have that we wish we could have? And if you think about it, this movie... One of the crutches that it has is the future tech where whenever we start to like kind of wane and like, I kind of don't care about continuing this movie. This character's boring. They add some cool new technology that like, Oh, that interested me again. Like just when the, the investigations get a little slow and Pluto Nash has already run away for a couple of times. Then they had that scene where he meets Peter Boyle. It's kind of a boring conversation. Oh, but the pool balls reset themselves in the billiards table. That's interesting. Or then they go to the holographic body sculpting, uh, you know, clinic, I guess you'd say. Where you with Eliana Douglas, yeah. Yeah, where you can see, who, by the way, I love. Anything that she's in, I absolutely love her. Um, mm. But, you know, you can see, oh, it's funny because you can see what your body would look like with this type or that type. And he makes jokes about like Rosario Dawson's booty and all that. But every time that they needed like a little kind of you know, adrenaline kick to the film. They're like, oh, I just thought a new piece of technology that people can look at, including of course, the, uh, the hover car that John Cleese is a part of. That's just really uh, a souped up uh, tech injection into the film.
1: Mm-hmm. It, it literally felt like they had like certain points where it's like, okay, you know, bar explodes, um, chase scene, uh, go, go to, you know bunker on far side, and then get to get a casino and and beat rex and then how do you fill out an hour and a half and and when you realize this movie was originally three hours long it's like how how much more did they try to fit in there right, right. and the fact that there were rewrites and and reshoots it's like part of me is actually curious to see that three hour it catch.
2: must be that part of it was him in prison because so much backstory is referenced of him being in prison and knowing all these different people that has to be part of it.
1: Mm -hmm. I I will give them credit though. Um, Like in some of those scene setting flyovers of the moon kind of thing, where you see like all of, you know, the, the city and whatnot, like that kind of stuff looked really, really cool. Oh yeah. Um, Even though some of the sets and, and maybe this was just me right on a technical standpoint is that the lighting of everything felt just flat There was no dynamic lighting there was no if this is supposed to be the moon and you know we're looking at the you know basically what's the underworld of the moon right discount mafia and people you know you know doing dastardly deeds to get their hands on on proper real estate and whatnot it's like okay that's fine light it like that don't light it flat and make it feel like some you know one set comedy kind of thing
2: yeah, at, at one point, I agree. The lighting was very flat. And it's like, does this movie have seasonal effectiveness disorder? Is this movie depressed? Like, well, you can choose to have a day cycle or a night cycle on the moon. That's okay. Have some scenes that are dark and some scenes that are well lit. Like, don't just grade in the middle and call it a day.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like, when they go to Far Side, which is clearly, you know, for lack of a better term, the dark side of the moon, mm-hmm. right? Make it feel that way. Like everything, nothing felt different. So when they go to Farside to, to, to get to Pluto's hideout, it feels like every other place that they've been at. And it's like, I, I, I don't see how this, you know, is, you know, this isn't you hunkering down. This isn't you in hiding. This is just you on set D. Yeah. It's just you for going that, to the your next summer
2: scene. home. Essentially. Mm-hmm
1: and then while all this is going on there's this music playing throughout the whole thing that 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 feels kind of is it me or did the score feel like an afterthought in this oh
2: i hated the score at the very beginning my notes say this movie starts with a bad 2000s rap remix of blue moon within 5 seconds i wanted to quit mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the only I, the only part of the score i enjoyed at all was at one point they have uh, kind of a remix for Dancing in the Moonlight or like a cover for Dancing in the Moonlight and like okay this is enjoyable but the rest of it just was not
1: and and even the orchestral score uh, which was done by John Powell mm-hmm. and it, you know, it's, it's not like he's you know he doesn't know how to make movies like he did the scores for uh, Solo the Star Wars story How to Train Your Dragon Mars Needs Moms X-Men Last Stand
2: oh, don't yeah. bring up Mars Needs Moms to me uh,
1: I, I I actually have in brackets in my notes another box office bomb. And and I'm sure one day somewhere down the road we'll probably end up doing a Mars Needs Moms kind of episode. But you know, Mars needs moms, the score was never the problem with that one. But it really felt like and this is the same year that he did the score for the born identity. So it's oh, it's not okay, right? So it's not like we're talking like a you know, it's not like they hit the stock music and and just filled it with whatever they could they had like a, a you know a really good composer at the helm it just it I don't know maybe it's because everything else was going on that everything else just kind of felt out of place as it
2: was I don't know i that's knowing now the pedigree of who was actually the composer I'm very flummoxed with what happened with the music now. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because
1: again, maybe it's because he was just working on, you know, Born Identity so much that it's like, uh, yeah, here's some spare cuts. Go for it. You know, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows? And maybe it's one of those things because they went through recuts and reshoots and the whole work. You know, you wonder how much of that affects what it. I, I Again, I would, I'm curious. I am curious what a three hour Pluto Nash movie would look like. I don't know if it'd be better or worse. I don't know.
2: It has to be better. There's no way that it's worse than this. I mean, unless. <laughs> The other hour and a half is just more Bruno robot sex jokes, which mm. honestly is not necessarily an entirely bad thing. They've done well, but you know, I don't know if I want <laughs> 90 minutes of it.
1: Okay. But if we get, uh, the adventures of Pluto Nash two, oopsie on the moon, mm-hmm. not no, just no, just no. Um, Twitter has spoken on this one as well. Uh, Anime Shin has chimed in and uh, says Eddie Murphy is at times the funniest person on the planet and at times the unfunniest. You can make a 1 to 10 scale of how funny something is from Eddie Murphy to Eddie Murphy, or Rex Chapman, Um, but on that scale, this is a 3. And I don't think, you know, they're far off on this one. It does, because he's not, I don't think this is Eddie Murphy's worst film by any stretches of the imagination, although this is probably his worst box office bomb, but... If, if I'm putting it to you on a scale of 1 to 10 how how funny is Eddie Murphy
2: in this 3 feels right I might be tempted to go as low as a 2 but I think he does have a good it, it's funny it's almost like the second act is where he hits his stride and then mm-hmm. he gets back to being serious in the third act and loses his comedy bits so if I'm really focusing on where is he actually funny how much does that make me laugh yeah okay I'll give him a 3 because in the second yeah. act, he kind of pulls it out.
1: And again, the the script does him no favors whatsoever. Um, and yeah, if, if, if there's tension between him and Underwood on set, then yeah, then Eddie Murphy's just going to do what Eddie Murphy's going to do and no one's going to tell him otherwise. Um, okay. The FJ podcast has chimed in as well. Not Murphy's worst movie. Agree. But fr- pretty far down there. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen it. But I don't remember anything about it anymore. Just the lingering sense that I hated it, that I have no interest in seeing it again, and that
2: Rosario Dawson looked incredible in it. Um, Oh, that's what everybody um, remembers. They just, if you ask anybody who's actually seen the film, what do you remember about Pluto Nash? Rosario Dawson was pretty good looking in there. mm -hmm. You know, and yeah, I think already this guy's described perfectly why this is not Eddie Murphy's worst film. It's not that I don't remember anything about it. I just remember that I've seen it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. If it's the worst film, you're going to be like, oh, it was such crap. Like this happens and this happens and this happens. But this is kind of middle of the road forgettable.
1: I I will say that I'm glad they didn't go for the, like the the cheap, oh, we're going to put Rosario Dawson in it and we're going to like, you know, just completely sexify her just, you know, for viewers, right? Mm -hmm. Her costuming, like everything is just like, it's, it's in character, it it feels right. It's it's not, it's it's not over the top, right? Rosario Dawson is great in this. She looks great in this. She acts good in this. Like you can't go wrong with Rosario Dawson. And also, uh, the Lord Chief Rock has also chimed in with running one Showtime at the Megaplex three days after release. And Oof. yeah, yeah, and it's probably not wrong on that one. Like it's if you debut. At two million on your first weekend, the only movie that comes to mind, and I'm talking as far as a major release goes, that probably fared worse, and and then you even have to take in, um, the difference in what year it came out on. The first movie that comes to mind is Gem and the Holograms. Oh which yeah, that was serves, a bad one. Yeah, it was out of the theater I think in the first week.
2: You know what movie did better than Pluto Nash? The Black Knight. That's, I'm just putting it out there. The Black Knight with, um, oh, what's his name? Martin Martin Lawrence. That did mm-hmm. better than Pluto Nash. And it's like, I love space more than medieval. And yet I'll watch the Black Knight before I watch Pluto Nash again.
1: Oh, geez. I am surprised that we have gotten through. the. We, we have talked for over an hour about the adventures of Pluto Nash, which is, I'm sure, more than anyone, you know, has ever thought about talking about the adventures of Pluto Nash, but it comes to the point where Greg, it's time to name your MVP. If there is one of the adventures of Pluto Nash, it's
2: kind of not. Okay. So I have an honorable mention and then an MVP honorable mention goes to John Cleese because he has such a short runtime, but he does so great with, and so enjoyable with what he does have and what he does present in this film. But I think, the only MVP really worth mentioning is poor, poor Rosario Dawson, whose knees must be seriously killing her from carrying the entire film on her back.
1: I I, I weighed this between two people, and Rosario Dawson was one of them, because I agree, she's an absolute gem in this film, despite everything. But that, not a hologram. But not, not a hologram, no. <laughs> not, God, you, you know what's going to happen, eh? That, that gem in the hologram it's, go, it's going to be a show in 2022 That we have to do I fully recognize that I'm down <laughs> But But My MVP has to go To Joe Pantoliano
2: Wow
1: There's There's just I mean yes He doesn't make it to the end Sorry spoilers But there's just something about his character In that In the world that they're supposed to be in you know, lunar underworld dealings, right? And he's, you know, the, 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 for lack of a better term, the hired muscle by Rex and whatnot. He is the one guy in all of this. You know, maybe aside from Peter Boyle, who I loved, I thought he was great. But the one character who, if you changed everything else about this movie, He'd be the one guy I don't want changed. He's perfect in that role. Um, if 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 it was flushed out more and given more more weight, I would still want Joe Pantoliano in that role. But yeah, Rosario Dawson definitely gets uh, gets an honorable mention. But yeah, no, for me for me it's it's Joe it's Joe Pantoliano.
2: Nice. Now before we wrap up, I have one thing that I have to mention before. Otherwise my nerddom rage will just overflow and I'll explode. (laughs) The entire conceit of this movie is stupid. So (laughs) Alec Baldwin is supposed to be this mafioso guy who decides I'm going to make a clone so that I can control him. And it'll be a clone of like someone who's got the skills to be able to run this operation. So that way, like I'll have an alibi and this guy can do all my bidding for him. And yet the clone clearly is able to turn around and kill him. Wouldn't it make much more sense to get a top of the line robot that you can control that doesn't sound like a robot? I thought it would have been genius if, cause all the robots has that weird kind of auto-tune thing like the share auto-tune. Wouldn't it be genius if at the very end, you the chair turns around and sure, it could be Eddie Murphy that looks like Pluto Nash, that's fine. But instead of being a clone, he's a robot, just super top of the line, where he doesn't sound robotic, but he has a super strength. And at the very end, Bruno even mentions when Eddie Murphy makes him manager, no robot's ever been in Me before. So it would have been a special surprise to have a robot be a mob boss that actually turned on Alec Baldwin. So just saying that the entire thing of being a clone, like, oh, I'm going to make a clone so I can control it. Oh, it killed me.
1: I mean, they they even alluded to... Uh, the various models because Bruno of course is a 63 they even Mm -hmm. mentioned about you know uh you know the 65s you know can actually keep up and whatnot or can actually uh listen and 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 think at the same time you know so you have that almost backstory of how much more improved the droids are so why not play up on this movie could be better it could be be much better. better oh absolutely But I think you're right. I think it's one of those things where if anyone ever went to a major studio and said, I need a hundred million dollars so I can remake the
2: adventures of Pluto Nash, how fast do you get kicked out of that room? And that's why we're crowdfunded to you listeners. If you want to donate to the Pluto Nash remake, <laughs> contact it's not that bad on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> I am I am
1: not putting that Patreon out there. There is no there is no Kickstarter for, for Pluto Nash to Electric Boogaloo. I, I I I would be shocked.
2: By the way, shocked. The, the, we're gonna keep that title, but I'm gonna change it to Lunar Boogaloo.
1: Ooh, I like that. Lunar Boogaloo. also, I have to I have to bring this up. Okay. Because the first time you were on the show, mm-hmm. we, we talked about Mac and me. Oh, I and love we that. Had, and we had to discuss the McDonald's flashbomb.
2: I was hoping we'd talk about the dancing in the club. Yes, go. What the? Nothing heck? but like, I wrote down the word sword arms. They're just <laughs> thrusting their arms in sharp angles in random directions, hoping to not pierce somebody. Sword arm, sworder, and apparently, I think I heard somewhere that this actually is a named dance move called like the Jupiter Jive or something like that. Are you so,
1: tell tell me this isn't a real dance?
2: No, I think they made it up for the film, and like that's they were trying to be as deep as that. Like, oh, let's do the Jupiter Drive.
1: Cause yeah, that's that. i I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm just like, does. Great movies with really odd, out-of-place dance sequences a, in it. Yes, I do.
2: <laughs> the, I, I want to remind you and any listener at home, dancing is supposed to be a metaphor for how well you are as a mate in the mating process. So if you're doing sword arms and thrusting hard at random angles, try not to hit someone in the face, that's going to be an ouchie time later on if you go home with that person. Maybe you don't.
1: Uh, ee, the last thing you want. It, it, it felt like a Klingon mating ritual. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. It was just, it was very violent, and very and very, very upfront there. And yeah,
2: like it's not <laughs> successful if you don't break at least three bones. You know,
1: it, it, it was almost as bad, like because it was so so out there. You almost wanted someone beforehand to go. And now in time, when Sprockets will be done.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh by the way if they ever make a sprockets movie
2: um, oh dana Carby kind of, would still be perfect for that are you kidding me if they ever do a sprockets
1: movie but sprockets is a, as you know set to you know to the music of rammstein you're picturing it now aren't you
2: i really am it's beautiful
1: <laughs> greg
2: thank you so much for this uh where can listeners find movie date night <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yes, you can find Movie Date, Light, or Movie Date Night on Facebook and Twitter at Movie Date Night. And also, I'm part of the Moral Combat group. Uh, that can be found uh, at Moral Combat uh, Facebook and Twitter. And a reminder to any of those who are listening uh, soon, on December the 17th, we are doing a charity stream where we are going to play a D&D game. And listeners can actually donate to affect the game, you can pay something like five dollars to give someone a health potion, to summon a dragon, to randomly cast magic missile to attack everybody, whatever you want. It all goes towards a good cause for mental health awareness.
1: And if you've been listening to the Major Mixtape podcast, you've heard that promo as well. So be sure to to tune in for that one, Greg Kent. Thank you so much for this. Uh, hey, anytime you have a really bad movie you want to watch that hopefully that hopefully I've has a dance scene,
2: library shelf of that. Don't tempt me with a good time.
1: <laughs> Okay, but it's got to have a dance scene, though. It has to have a dance scene.
2: Ooh, challenge accepted. Challenge accepted. Okay. (laughs)
1: Until until next time, listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you know the deal. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is so bad, much like this one, (laughs) that we can barely find anything good to talk about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast. Put it out there. We'll even invite you on the show if you're up for it, and we'll dissect it, and we'll find the A Grades and B movies. This is It's Not That Bad. Until next time, take care.
0: What's up combat crew, Matt here from the Moral Combat Podcast and I wanted to take a second to let you all know that on Friday, December 17th starting at 4pm Pacific Time we will be hosting our annual charity stream live at twitch.tv slash naturalhattrick, that's N-T-R-L-H-A-T-T-R-I-C-K and this year we will be raising funds for heart support and their mission to make mental health care more accessible for all. We will be playing a custom 5e D&D game where your donations directly affect the game. You can cast creatures to battle our heroes, cast spells for or against them buy a mystery token to put down the plinko board or summon a mighty dragon and we are setting out to raise one thousand dollars we would love to have you come hang out and have some fun with us and as an added bonus if we make our goal of one thousand dollars the folks from the podcast will be doing the one chip challenge live on that stream seriously google it it's pretty wicked hope to see you all there on friday december 17th starting at 4 p.m pacific time